Hi guys, it's Josh Rubin here with the Rubin special. We have our friend Gary Gold. He's trying to find me on Instagram. Gary, thanks so much for joining us from Los Angeles and at Beverly Hills. How's, how's it going? Oh, it's going pretty well. Thanks. I just wanted to uh, see uh, you know, how things are going out in Los Angeles today. I know you're trying to find me on Instagram. I don't know if this is going to work or not, but we're here together, which is most important. I, uh, there we go. Requests and requests. <laughs> I think that may have worked. If it does, great. If not, what the hell? How you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. So we're trying to do two things at the same time, which is to go Facebook Live and Instagram Live. So I'm hoping that the Instagram thing uh, chops in, but uh, if it doesn't, so be it. You guys on Instagram should be following us on the Ruben special on the Ruben team at Facebook. So Gary from Los Angeles, what is going on in LA today? Today in LA, you know what? For, maybe I'm just dead inside, but I have not had such a, I don't think this thing has had such a huge impact in what I'm doing on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm doing the same thing I did before, Except, you know, I'm the actual coming to show houses, I'm doing that less, but everything else I'm just doing a little bit more. So um, I think there's enough, you know, our industry has just been prepared to handle this kind of thing. Not like we were had some drill, but we've been showing houses online for years. You know, the first and second time people see houses, it's online. So that just really hasn't changed. So I think it's changed less than we think it has. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty out there. It's almost like we're operating in a little bit of a vacuum because people don't know, is it okay to go out? Is it okay to walk into this person's house? Is it okay for this person to walk into my house? We just don't know. So what we're there to do is to educate people. As Tom Ferry said the other day, look at the data. Let's not act on emotion, but let's look at the data and let's actually focus on facts. So it's up to us to actually be the information broker, if you will. We're not just selling real estate, but we're helping people understand the facts so that they can make informed decisions. And the more informed decisions that people make, the more likely it is that they're gonna be comfortable doing whatever it is they plan to do, whether it's you know, sell, buy, stay. And and you know, with that said, you know, we need to help people put one foot in front of the other. You know, I did the, I went through the same process that first week. <clears throat> I've been through a lot of ups and downs. I've been doing this long enough where I've definitely had some shitty times. And I remember when this happened, I was <clears throat> really nervous. And I remember something Steve Hardney had said in the last six recessions, only one of them negatively impacted real estate. So I started to look about where were we before this all started a couple months ago? And if you looked at the numbers, they were really strong. Interest, I mean, in our town, and it's probably very similar in other people's, Prices have been going up for 11 years. Inventory has been shrinking for 12 years. Interest rates are at a 40-year low. Uh, people are not using their house like a bank account, so they're not leveraged on it. People own a lot, you know, own, I think half the country has less than 50% own all their property. So you look at all those facts, I go, even if this has an impact you know, like right now at four months inventory, if it went up 50% to six months, that's still a healthy market. Um, no one's anticipating prices going down, but if they did go down 10, 15%, which is a lot, that's just rolling it back a couple of years. That's not rolling it back to the stone ages. You know, the average person who sells their house has been in it 13 years. So if they don't double their money, they only make 80% of their money. 
it's still great. Developers are have bought these houses. Developers, if they make a little bit less, they're still going to do really, really well. So I don't think prices are going down, but I think real estate is on a different trajectory than the economy, um, at least in the short term. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if you're right. New York City has actually seen softening the last three years, ever since uh, you know Donald Trump was elected president. There's been one uncertainty after another. That said, you know, if let's say you're in a stock and the stock goes roaring over the last month, which a lot ha- a lot of stocks have done, I've been watching some stocks that have doubled in no time, and no one ever anticipated this. You know, they came out of the the, the March lows and they literally doubled or tripled in some cases in you know just the last month it's crazy so if you're in one of those stocks and the stock goes down 20 percent, well i got news for you you're still up 80 percent, but you're going to say but i was up 100 percent, and i thought it had more room to go well guess what maybe you were wrong okay so if you're in one of these houses that in 2015 2016 you could have sold for 5 million and today you could sell for 4 million and you bought it for 2 million well you're still doubling your money so you know, maybe now is still a good time to downsize, upsize, you know, move, you know, take advantage and, and move to the pied terre in the city from your house on Long Island. I mean, you know, who's to say when the time is right for you, but to judge based on, you know, where the market is today or tomorrow, you know, we're talking about houses that people are actually going to use for the next five or more years. You know, the one thing interesting that I look at, and I really don't have a lot of, when things happen, if a deal falls out or something happens, I don't, immediately go, shit, this is bad. I'm like, how, I don't, because I don't know how things will play out. I remember when there was the writer strike, um, it was maybe 20 years ago. And all of a sudden the networks had nothing to show and they started showing these reality shows. They had a couple of them. And as a result of a writer strike, all of a sudden reality shows became a big thing. Um, in this situation, I think that you know some unintended consequences are going to come out of this. First of all, people around the world have been, you know, have been quarantined basically in their home. Literally, everywhere in the world, everyone's had to stay home for the last two months. I think that's going to have a positive impact on the intrinsic value of your home, especially what we do in the luxury space. If somebody has the money and they can afford it. And they say, next time this happens, or if anything like this happens, I want a screening room. I want a bigger kitchen. I want an office in my house. I think this is going to cause the, I think it's going to, that part is going to make a lot of people wanting to buy, sell, and trade houses. And I don't think that people today think houses are worth less than they did two months ago. I think they're worth, I think they think intrinsically they're worth more. You know, I absolutely agree. And I think that we're going to see values go up as a result of this. Never in our lifetimes, and in fact, in the last 100 years, have we ever been forced to stay home. Yes, we've seen recessions. Yes, we've seen bear markets. We've seen bull markets. But in all that time, no one has been forced to really stay in their home and focus on both what they love about it and guess what? What they hate about it. That's why when this all started, I forecasted that we're going to see a boom in real estate because people are going to be uh, more prone to move. We're going to see a higher degree of a nesting instinct. And guess what? The downside of that is we're, we're, we're going to be spending time with our spouses and we're going to figure out what we really love about them and what we really don't love about them. And so we're going to see divorce rates increase as a result. But you know, 
we're actually going to see people move because they're going to say, hey, we need more space, or hey, this is too much space, or we don't quite like the, the lot size that we're on, or you know, you know, the, the apartment size, we're living in a studio apartment. I've sold more than my fair share of cramped spaces with families of four. I had a one bedroom that I sold a few years ago that had very high ceilings and it had a loft in the bedroom. So the parents were sleeping up in the loft in the bedroom and at the foot of the stairs leading down from the loft was a bunk bed that the two kids were in. At, at the foot of the bed, they had a giant cage with a chinchilla in it. And that was in a one bedroom apartment. I'll bet you they're grateful that they actually sold that apartment when they did. Oh, they were getting, there was no action going on there. <laughs> I don't even want, I don't want to get the chinchilla part involved. I don't even know what that means. But uh, yeah, I think, you know what? You just never know how things play out. Another thing that could have a positive, it, definitely there's some things out there that could have a negative impact on the real estate market. People are losing their jobs. There's been wealth that's been lost, a lot of uncertainty, but a couple of things we've already discussed. Another thing that could have a very positive impact on real estate is the government has literally been printing trillions of dollars. There's That money didn't just appear somewhere. They literally printed trillions of dollars, which at some point devalues the dollar. I think what's probably keeping the dollar strong is everyone else is printing trillions of dollars too, and we're still the best thing. But when that happens, smart people wanna have their money in tangible assets, because that's the only way to beat dollars going down is if you have actual hard assets. So that could have a positive impact. So I think the combination of the positive and the negative things going on now is just going to leave us at a fairly positive place. Um, long-term, this is, un I mean, I don't really know. I'm, I mean, long-term, I'm not sure how this will play out, but I think this year is going to be very strong real estate market. It, it all depends on how we define long term, right? I mean, right now we're one day at a time. Next Friday. That's long term. <laughs> exactly. You know, we're seeing these governors of these various states. Some are opening, you know, in the case of Florida, in the case of uh, Texas, Michigan, which was a hot spot in Detroit. You know, that's actually opening because people showed up at the Capitol protesting armed with weapons and saying, you're, you're affecting our, you know, Bill of Rights. So at the end of the day, Gary, you know, we're, we're really looking at these stay-at-home orders. You know, some are extended. Uh, you know, Pennsylvania's still, we're, we're non-essential in Pennsylvania. In New York, we're essential, but we can't actually meet with people to show property. So we're doing everything virtually. But, you know, longer term, you know, we're looking at, you know, six months, 12 months, 24 or more months. So, you know, what I see happening is a very robust summer. I just got off the phone with Douglas Elliman, Chief Operating Officer, Scott Durkin. And mm -hmm. Scott is saying that, uh, you know, we're definitely going to see a robust summer, but he agrees with me in saying we're probably going to see some uncertainty as volatility picks up in equity markets as we get close to the election cycle. And then it's going to be a fairly busy first quarter of 21. And then I think it's going to be off to the races. A lot of people in New York, I saw an interview with Barbara Corcoran and Leonard Steinberg the other day. Mm -hmm. Barbara's saying that this reminds her of September 11th, where there's this there's a sense of fear and uncertainty, but next thing you know, this is like, uh, this is almost like I, I told earlier, I told someone earlier, uh, my, my friends, uh, JD Lenard and uh, Tom tool, Jill Biggs. I was saying that this is like a rubber band and, and you bring it back and you bring it back and you bring it back. And the further you bring it back and then you let it go is the more energy that it has in the opposite effect, because for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's what happens to the market. And I wouldn't be surprised if it has a longer lasting effect than we think. And people are going to be looking back 
at these last couple of months is saying, wow, that was an amazing opportunity. I would have bought that house for that price had I oh. known the sellers were that flexible. Are you seeing any uh, are you seeing any great deals being done anecdotally in your local market? Um, well, I want to mention one thing and then I'll get into that. You know, I, everyone you just described, Leonard Steinberg, Barbara Corcoran, your guy from uh, Douglas Elman, you, you're all from New York. And New York is like ground zero and it's so concentrated and intense. And it's just not like that in the rest of the country. Also, all the media is pretty much all based in New York. So I don't think what you're experiencing is quite as intense as what other people are experiencing. And I also thought like the election could have an impact. But if you look at the statistics, elections really don't have that big of an impact on real estate, maybe on the economy, but not on real estate. In terms of good deals, uh, first of all, I think there's always an opportunity to get a great, there's always an opportunity to get a great deal in a good market and to get a bad deal in a good market and vice versa. So I, I think you should always look for a good opportunity. But I would say early on, definitely, I have clients and I still have clients that even though they think that the market's going to, we're heading into something that's going to be good. Maybe someone who has something worth 25 million might sell it for a million less just for peace of mind, you know, just to hedge their bet. They're still making money. Um, you know, I can, you could say the same thing for 2.5 million. So I think that there are people right now that would probably take a, a, a little bit of a discount for peace of mind and not to deal with the uncertainty. I think that that's going to evaporate really quickly because I just think every indication is that demand is up. You know, Homelight and Zillow and those companies that, you know, do iBuying, yep. they stopped buying at the beginning and they started buying again. And those guys are all just numbers guys. There's no emotion there. And they're buying because they, they will not, those guys can't buy in a declining market. Their margins are too thin. So when they start buying, that is a telltale sign that prices are stabilized or going up or they're just not going to buy. So um, I think that the, uh, the deal opportunities are probably going to be evaporating soon, other than the normal deals you can get under any circumstances. There are people, you know, we deal a lot with a lot of things where the buyer has to show up. It's not like something on a shelf that's that much of a commodity. It's more of a luxury item. And there's people who need to sell and need to sell now. And those and often the best deals are people who've overpriced their home in the first place. And now nine months later, they really need to sell it. And yeah. they kind of uh, have worn out their welcome on the market. And then they just go, screw it. I just want to sell it. And they end up selling it for 10% less than they could have if they played it right the first time. That happens you know, a lot. That's an interesting point, Gary. And I often tell sellers who are speaking to multiple brokers that you know they want to price it here. The market is indicating that we're here. We're in a declining market, so to price it exactly where the market says, you know, you're likely to continue to miss the market, and you're going to wind up chasing the market down. And the best way to price in any market is so that the market is at your back. If you price with the market at your back in an accelerating market, then you're going to get offers above the asking price. And in, and in a declining market, if you price slightly ahead of the market, you're going to get offers at your asking price. But never are you in this case where you're in an equal and opposite reaction mode, or what I call a pendulum effect. If you know somehow you have a crystal ball, and your price is supposed to be right in the middle of that arc of the pendulum, 
and you price it too far to the right, meaning above where you would realistically expect it to trade to add in some padding for negotiation as some people tend to do, well, you're likely to see that pendulum come back and swing and, and wind up in the opposite end of the spectrum, mm -hmm. meaning you're going to sell it for less than you could have had you priced it to, to be priced it accurately mm -hmm. to begin with. We have it in LA, like I have a little additional challenge than you do. You, you sell primarily apartments, correct? Yes. Very easy to quantify in New York city, location, view, size, ceiling, floor, you know, so it's very, I would assume it's very easy to quantify. You guys are selling feet. I'm pro I'm pri pricing properties and selling properties where it's somewhat arbitrary what it's worth. It's not an exact number. It's like we we know within a certain extent, but it's really really arbitrary. So we have to do a lot. It's it's different. So we have that definitely challenge that we don't know exactly what these houses are worth when we're listing it. No one does. Um, I guess. Well, what, do you, what do you do in a situation like that? Because I. I mean, I know you've been in that in that position yeah. many times before. Many times. So I mean, how do you how do you approach the seller in a situation where you know it's not like talking to your buddy Josh Rubin in New York, and you can't just say I have no idea what. Well, the first of all, I tell him that I said, let me give you some inside baseball. You could have five people come here and tell you what they think it's worth, and there's a swing. I mean, just depending on a lot of situations, you could have a 10, 15 percent swing either way. So just, I tell them that it is somewhat arbitrary what we're talking about here. There aren't exact comps for it. Uh, I do something I call triangulation. Like when I sold the Playboy Mansion, nothing had ever sold for $100 million. I literally had nothing to compare it to. And then we sold one for 150 two years later. And the same thing, we had nothing to compare it to. But we start, it's more of a thesis. It's like if this sold for this and that sold for that, and you add these different factors, you start piecing together, and then it looks like we're gonna hit there, give or take. And that's how it happens. Now, once you put it on the market, one thing that, it sounds a little scary, people don't know what it's worth, How if you, what if you miss the market and you actually sell for 20% less and you don't know that? It doesn't really work out that way. You get two wealthy people together and you get them to start negotiating, they find, literally 99 out of 100 times, they find that perfect price. Those two guys are going to figure it out. And between the negotiation process and between time on the market, it's amazing how that price comes together. Walk us through a little bit since you brought it up. Uh, you know, the Playboy Mansion, that was your first, I, I trust that was your first nine digit transaction, right? Yeah. Yeah. And at the time, wasn't that a record for uh, Los Angeles and, and yes, California I'm, for a residential sale. I'm the Roger Bannister of <laughs> high-end real estate in, in Beverly Hills. Yes. So in, it's actually in Homeby Hills. So that was the first house to ever sell for hundred million. Interestingly in 72, it sold, it was the first house to ever sell for 1 million. Wow. So it's interesting. So, so Hefner bought it in 72 for $1 million. $1 million. Right? $1 million yes. And then he, and he held on to it. And in that time he, he did some living there, no doubt. Um, but then you, you turned around, you sold it. Uh, what was it? Two or three years ago now? It was 16. Was it 16 or 17? Uh, okay. Three years ago, something like that. I think it was about three years ago. If memory mm -hmm. serves. So when you sold the Playboy mansion for a hundred million dollars, you walked in to, to this initial meeting 
And I assume pricing was discussed at, at this initial meeting with the, I think it was some trustees that you dealt with if memory serves. And and how did you discuss pricing? How did you approach it? And and you know, what properties did you cite as examples of the, the so-called triangulation as you put it earlier? Right. Well, there were a couple houses that sold in like 70 and 80. And definitely use those as comparison. Uh, we added, we said this is probably one of the few houses that actually has additional value based on what it is. And um, what it is, meaning, meaning the, the uh, sort of panache. Mansion. A lot of people think because, you know, some celebrity, Johnny Depp lived in a house that's worth more money. And general, usually that's not the case. But in this case, right. maybe the most famous residence in the world. So yeah. we thought that that had an extra cachet to it. We gave it uh, a range. Um, turns out it's exactly what we thought it was going to sell for. Hundred million dollars, so we were right on with that. Um, but it was, you know, it definitely was just a, a thesis. It was a evaluation. It wasn't a fact. But you um, brought it on, Gary, not at a hundred million dollars. You brought it on at a number that was quite a bit higher than that. Uh, if you consider two hundred million more, I would agree with that. You'd say it's higher. So that's like the average home sale in New York City being two million dollars. That's like bringing that $2 million apartment on the market at 4 million, knowing that it's probably going to sell for two. So that, ne that wouldn't necessarily uh, translate in, in most markets, or, you know, let's say you're selling an $800,000 home in Wellesley, Massachusetts, uh, you know, bringing that on for almost 2 million. So you know, all these big houses, we do things a little different. I didn't, I, I wasn't, I didn't necessarily in a vacuum make that decision myself to bring it out at 200. Right. Um, but we did it. In that particular case, it probably didn't matter that much. And we found a buyer immediately and it took months to negotiate and it took a few different buyers to kind of create the market. That's what made that one sell is we had three people that wanted it. And then all of a sudden it became very clear what it was worth. So in that case, I didn't have a choice. We just priced it that because that's what the consensus was, what they wanted to do. Um, but it was so high profile. We didn't even put it in the MLS and we didn't even really spend much money on advertising. It just. Just advertised itself almost yeah, once it was available, you know, word got out and it traveled like wildfire. And then, you know, the, uh, the buyers came a calling. Well, the neighbor bought it. So anyone right. out there that doesn't think door knocking doesn't work. Guess again. <laughs> so what did you do? Just buzz on the gate? Like, uh, like little Dicky? The neighbor that we actually knew that he was probably, you know, he was probably, we probably knew he was our buyer. Uh, he was the most likely one, but there was a number of buyers and he just ended up prevailing. So that's interesting. You know, in New York, we have a saying that there's only one person who's going to pay more for a property than somebody else. And that's the person who lives immediately next door because people are living in these, you know, 1000 plus or minus square feet uh, apartments. And when people start, uh, you know, getting together with somebody else and having kids, they need more space and they love their building. They love their location. They can't find exactly what they're looking for. And, you know, they're looking for certainty, of course. So when you combine all those factors, breaking through the neighbor's apartment often makes a lot of sense. Right. Uh, do you, you live in the city in like one of these condos or where do you live? So, you know, th that's a great question, Gary. And I'm asked that all the time. And, and the truth is that I live in the moment. Very nice. Oh, by the way, people don't, you know, they probably think you're like this New York guy that's, you know, just made it on his own and, you know, not like you went to Harvard or anything, but he's a very sophisticated guy. I've had breakfast with him twice. 
<laughs> both times he this is how elevated he is and, and cultured he had salad with his eggs that's true both i times. did but that was probably in my non-gluten phase and uh by now i'm uh, i'm about four months gluten so <laughs> so, high gluten yeah so so that said gary um tell us a little bit about how you got into the business um, I, last thing I wanted to do is be in real estate. I wanted to be a stand-up comedian. I wanted to be like a cast member of SNL. I just didn't know how to do that. And, uh, my brother was in real estate and this is back a long time ago when like the average age of a real estate agent where we lived was dead. So it wasn't a cool business, but my brother was this young, cool guy and he started making a lot of money and he was, he really stood out because he was like 21 and good looking. And he said, come work for me and I'll buy you a car. I had recently tried to paint a car and I ruined it. So <laughs> I went and worked for him and I was this creative person. And my brother said, I want you to do, we want to do some marketing. And he said, do whatever you want, whatever you want. So for me, I handled it like a comedian and we did all these really outrageous comedic fun things that was no one had ever done anything like that. Now, there's a lot of people with personal brands and they're very outrageous and, but that wasn't happening back then. So I'm sure I wasn't the only one, but I'm one of the first people to kind of like treat a real estate agent, like a surfer or a skateboarder or someone with like a personal brand. And I didn't know I was doing that. I was just being smart at, but my brother was so successful and our marketing campaign, he was one guy and he seemed, we seemed bigger than, these huge offices because we were just doing so much business. So I got in it doing his marketing. And then one day he came to me and said, I'm out of residential. I'm going to do this thing in commercial. It's all yours. And I just took over that division. So I started with all this business. Um, my brother, it's interesting. My brother uh, became this uh, commercial agent doing these full floor leases of office buildings for this guy named Paul Fijian all over the country, he made millions of dollars. But Paul Fijian had this idea of taking a full floor or two or three floors in an office building and adding a law library and a receptionist and a conference room so a single attorney could appear like he's in a sophisticated office and made a fortune and really was invented what we work is. Wow, so he was specific to, to the law profession? Yeah. Other people could go there, but it was pretty much for lawyers because they needed law offices and law libraries and copiers and receptionists. And that would, you know, it was prohibitive to do that. This is before computers. So overnight, my brother just said, it's yours. So I was 17, 18 years old and selling big, expensive houses. So I was fortunate in that respect. And this was all based in Los Angeles County. Yes. That started in the Valley. And then in, when I was 30, I moved to Beverly Hills. Huh. And that's where... Uh, I mean, I was selling big houses in the San Fernando Valley, but uh, Jeff Hyland recruited me to move to Beverly Hills. I got rid of my business, and that's when uh, things got very real in terms of big houses. And wow. that's how it started. Uh, but I never want – it wasn't until 2006 that I started to like this business. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I, wanted, I wanted to be like a comedian or a writer. And right. then – when in when computers and internet and marketing and working with developers all came around, I remember I said something to myself, it was the best thing I ever said to myself. What can I do in real estate that feels 
as creative as when I'm writing a screenplay or I'm doing stand-up because because doing those things was ruining my real estate business where I was making money. And all of a sudden with the internet and marketing and as helping developers design buildings, um, I started looking at everything I do in real estate in a creative way. And all of a sudden I'd be, I loved it. I decided, I figured out I didn't necessarily need to be a member of SNL or a comedian. I needed to be creative. So ever since then, I really approach everything with my creative abstract mind and I love this business. There's so much you can do there. I mean, look at, we can be whatever the hell we want to be. And it's, uh, it's actually a neat business. There's a lot of innovative people out there doing business. I mean, a lot. Yeah. It's interesting. It tends to be a magnet for us artists, doesn't it? It does. Um, yeah. You wouldn't think that. I mean, that's why people, yeah, it's a really interesting, I mean, there's like a million real estate agents and we're all like, these little promoters and people do it in so many ways. I mean, yeah. there's some really crazy outrageous people, but there's so many different ways to be a real estate agent. But the one thing we all have in common is I think we're pretty advanced when it comes to technology and marketing and we got to do a ton of things. When I started in real estate, it was a very simple business. And now we have to do so many things. I mean, we're psychologist, we understand construction, we understand finance, psychology, law, marketing, technology. It's you know, the people that are good like me and you, and there's happens to be just a lot of us. Pretty impressive what we do. It, it really is. And you know, we have we also have to have extraordinarily good intuition. And I remember from the time that I was little, I had extremely uh, high degree of uh, what they call street smarts which is really just savvy and awareness of your surroundings. And, you know, like I, I'm doing a negotiation now and we had a second showing yesterday with the buyers. So I assume that their broker would be in touch and say, okay, showing went well, we're, we're on track. Let's go. Didn't hear from the broker right away. So I text, so I called him. He didn't pick up. I texted him, no response. About an hour later, I called him again. He picked right up, said, Oh yeah, sorry. I was with my kids because he sent his assistant to do the second showing. And I said, well, tell me what's going on. Are we on track? And he said, you know, I'm not sure. I haven't heard from the girls, but I assume we are. Otherwise, they would have let me know. And uh, I said, okay, well, you know, send me the deal sheet. And he didn't send me the deal sheet. And then this morning, I sent him a text at 8 o'clock. No response. I sent him another text at 10 o'clock. I said, you know, do we have something to be concerned about here? So he said, well, I called them at 9, and they said they'd call me back, and I haven't heard, heard from them, so I'm really not sure. And I said, sounds like a case of cold feet here. And, you know, there's nothing specific that tells me that they don't want to proceed. It's just the, the, the pattern of communication was interrupted. And so, you know, I got the sense that, you know, maybe we're not on track, which is, you know, not surprising given the climate out there. But, you know, it, it's just, you know, it, these, these very little, you know, slight little, what, what they call in the casino, a tell, tell right? 100%. Like we're like poker players. I, I yesterday called a client I have a listing with that's co-listed with a couple other agents. And I just called him and I said, you're planning on canceling the listing with us in four days. I know it. Call me. Let's talk about that. <laughs> he didn't say it. He didn't tell me we would do that. I just could tell based on a couple different patterns. When people call me, because I get calls on, I have these crazy expensive listings and I get a lot of effectively crank calls or people out of their mind or people doing some kind of hustle. So we get all kinds of calls that we have to qualify people. 
I can tell if someone's a real buyer with literally the moment they utter a word, I yeah. know if they're a buyer. And people go, how do you do that? And I said, it's, A, I go, it's not what people, um, I go, it's the question. People who have a lot of money and are buy, want to buy a house, and it probably would work in any price range, they ask certain questions. And people that aren't and there's some kind of game, they don't ask those same questions. That's right. You know, I, I've had experiences with those people, believe it or not, where I thought from the outset, okay, something seems off here, but I'm going to go with it and see what happens. I've been surprised. These people have shown up with literal bags of cash at my listings, mm -hmm. you know, to, to buy them. You know, it maybe it's not an overnight thing, but ultimately they, they pan out. And, you know, my, my dad, who's also in, in sales, and he was really my uh, sort of entree to the profession from the time that I was young, uh, he has an expression that is that the wrong thing works enough times that sometimes it winds up being the right thing. So you just never know. You have to know, you know, how to, how to guard against it and how to qualify. And if you, if you get that spidey sense, ask for, ask for people's, uh, you know, proof of funds and, you know, if they have it great. And if they don't, well, then, you know, to pivot and, and move along. It's, um, it's a really good point. I, you know, I often will be talking with a partner or someone I work with or my client and saying, how do you know this guy's real? And I said, you know what? I don't know he's real, but I'm going to play this hand. This one I'm going to play. That guy's not worth it. We make those decisions. But yeah, there's plenty of times where I can't, I don't know if someone's real, but I'm just willing to play it out. And so, but at least I have in my mind, I'm, you know, I have that sense that maybe there's something not right. But then there's a lot that is just plain out. This is not worth our time. And you yeah. and ask for proof of funds or ask for a couple things. And if it doesn't, if it, that, that doesn't play out, then, you know, they walk. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I tell people all the time that 90% of what I do is actually a waste of my time. You, you just don't know. So you got to throw 100% against the wall to get that 10%. And that 10%, has enabled me to be, you know, one of the most successful real estate professionals in the country. I like that. One, one thing I like to, one of the things I think all the time is that we're in the business of getting people to sign paper. And like in any particular deal from the beginning to the end, there might be 20 different times someone has to sign something that pushes along. And that's all we're doing is like, just get them to sign the next piece of paper, the next yeah. one, push it closer and closer and closer. Yeah. Um, I also don't, I don't get too hung up in the ultimate outcome. I'm really just looking at the next step, make, moving something up to the next step. Uh, I definitely want to have sold some of these uh, epic sales that virtually seemed impossible and or even gotten them if I didn't just do, okay, what's the next step to getting this listing or making this sale? And just make these little steps. And eventually some of them happen. That's how it yeah. works. Nothing yeah. happens beyond that. Just, just course corrections along the way, and sometimes it winds up paying off, and you know sometimes you wind up moving on to your next opportunity. I mean, well, you know, you know I, I got into developments for like six or seven years in the early two thousands, and I got my head handed to me. I, I went all in on developments, spent a lot of money and all my time, and kind of almost abandoned my resale business, and it, it oh my, it just destroyed me in so many ways. And, but when I got back, I had learned so much about marketing and technology in, mar in doing developments. 
And I would have never gotten the big sales I got if it wasn't for the relationships and the lessons I learned in that process. Huh, that's interesting. So you got it, you went into development work in the early 2000s yeah. and you and you practically shelved your resale business. I did. So so how, really how did you then come, how did you how did you then come out of that and sort of re, rebuild your new development business and I mean, re, re, redevelop your resale business I should say and and how did you sort of rebuild it? I'll tell you exactly what happened. So it was it was very obvious this happened. I mean, it literally went broke. The one thing I the one there was one thing that happened during the developments that was like interesting to me is I, I someone had told me about Zillow at the time, and I just thought in Beverly Hills Zillow, no one used it. It seems silly, but the guy says this really works. So I had these big budgets for developments, and I started experimenting with the developers' money. And those projects, they said, let's put a little money towards Zillow. Now, the one thing when you would buy display ads for Zillow back then, as a side, if you advertised in Beverly Hills, they'd give you that ad on the right, which now is their product. That was a giveaway. They would give you that if you did a display ad in the top or on a banner. So I had all these uh, ads with my face on it. I didn't even know they were coming in all of Beverly Hills. I like bought all of Beverly Hills and then the Sunset Strip. So when I got rid of the developments, I started getting phone calls from all these people from Zillow. I didn't even know where they were coming from. It took a second to put, us, put it together. So when I got out of developments, I said, okay, I need to reinvent myself. I wanna be the most technologically and marketing advanced guy in the business who's got also 30 years of experience. That combination I think is a real winner. But it took a while for me to go to people and say, I advertise online. They go, they just didn't even understand what I was talking about. But I brought, I kept those zip codes from Zillow and I killed it on Zillow. Killed wow. it. And huh. I mean, there's a lot of famous people that I would get a call at 11 o'clock at night or an email and like celebrities and I was doing deals with them. And I was responding to people in China and celebrities that are on their plane late at night. And I figured well, I'm out. Sorry, just, just hang, hang on one second there, Gary. So you're telling me that, you know, a, an A-list celebrity is on Zillow clicking on your face and saying, please call me. Uh, they're asking about a property and I would respond to them. And right. I, I, I got that and a lot of foreigners too. And I figured out if I responded on people's own time, like if someone was calling from another time zone, whether it was China, and I responded late at night, I, I, I beat everybody out. But there was really no one else on Zillow in Beverly Hills. So I was getting all the action. And that really got me back in action. And I started to build the story that I'm the guy who is marketing things online and telling people this is how houses were selling. I remember going on listing appointments at the beginning and everyone looked like the RCA dog with just like, what are you talking about? And it, it didn't work. It took a while for people to get it, but that's how I built my entire business. So I when remember you say, when you, when you say that people weren't getting it, what, what weren't they getting exactly? They didn't believe me that, celebrities or people buying three or four or five or six or $10 million homes were looking online and that's how they were on Zillow. They just didn't, they didn't believe that's how houses were selling. Got it. It was before any, I mean, real estate agents weren't either. All you need to do to kind of secure your listing back at the time is register for Zillow. And then your name would be 
on the side of the property and yep. no one was doing it. So my face was on all those. So you're an early adopter. I was an early adopter. And I remember, and then I remember going, and I also said, I'm going to check. I was going to Pacific Coast Builders Conference. I said, I'm going to stop that. I'm going to go check out this Inman thing. And I remember going up in Inman, like in 2009 or something. I remember going up on the plane in San Francisco. And I remember walking down the aisle and everyone on the plane was on a smartphone or an iPad. iPad had been out for two months. And I go, I am entering the twilight zone. What's going on? And I remember walking into 3,000 people at Inman. At that time, very few real estate agents were there. It was all vendors. And everyone was on a laptop or an iPad, which, as I said, was two months old. And I said, there's a different world going on here. And I remember meeting Spencer and Greg from Zillow and I became friendly with them because I was starting to really leverage Zillow and no one else was doing the high-end stuff. And that's how I got that. I've had, I've reinvented myself several times in real estate. And that was, I would say the latest and um, it was fun. And it re I really found something that worked, but I was, uh, I was up shit's Creek at the time when I got back. And I remember I couldn't get a, I tried to get a $3 million listing when I just got back and they said, show me your track record. And I didn't have a recent one to show them. Well, Gary, you know, I remember that you and I were on a panel a year or two ago about specifically we were talking about luxury. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what's interesting is you and I had a very similar opinion because in the audience, we had people ranging from people who, who had some of our experience to people who were brand new to the business. And people said, well, you know, let's say you don't have that track record. What do you do? Oh, well, the key, uh, the, the, what I did and what I've done and what now I'm getting it, I'm, I'm, it's paying back on the other way, is you co-op someone who does. That's one way to do it, is you co-op someone who does. I remember, um, and whatever you, and also when you do, so let's just say you have an opportunity to get a big listing and you get it and you bring in someone else that's got that leverage, you then can, that's now on your record you have to take that sale and you've got to leverage and market that sale. And that's what you start selling yourself on. And I remember doing it. So I remember I sold Ashton Kutcher's house. It was a million six, but he was a celebrity. And I started leveraging that. And then I remember. And so, so I'm sorry, you sold Ashton's house for a million six. Yeah. You leveraged it. Yes. Can you, can you tell us specifically what you sure. did to leverage well, I got it? A lot of, I got some press from it. And then I would say, I'm the guy who does this, you know, work with celebrities and blah, blah, blah. And that was what I did. And then I remember, then I sold a house to a couple Chinese people for like $6 million. And at the time people were thinking Chinese buyers were the cure for everything. And um, I started to leverage that. I am up and I'm responding to people at 11 at night when my competitors are asleep and I'm actually getting people flying in from Hong Kong and buying houses. And that's, that was the next thing I started to sell myself at. Sell what you got. But if you're new and you're trying to break into luxury, A, co-opt agents that have the experience at, at front. And number two, if you know a marketplace, wherever it is, someplace, let's just use New York. If there was a certain area and you knew every square inch of it in terms of real estate, anyone will go out with a buyer if you run into somebody or you have the opportunity to just have that moment, we all have moments where someone says they're looking for something and you say, I've got the property for you because you really know this market. You don't have to have 
a reputation or anything. Anyone would literally go out with any agent that said he had the right thing and said, you know, said the right things and said, you're looking for this kind of loft or this kind of townhouse. I've got it. It's this price, not on the market. You should come see it. It's exactly what you're looking for. People don't care who you are at that point. People care who they list their home with, but you can have these chance meetings where if you really know the market and someone says something and you can identify the right thing, look out with anyone. You know, I'm smiling, Gary, because, uh, you know, a lot of this has come up in these conversations that we've had the last few weeks. And, it, you know, now what you say matters more than ever, mm -hmm. right? And people can smell your mindset. People can detect your experience and people can get a real sense of, you know, your knowledge, bottom line. And, and whether you're operating from a place of fear or a place of conviction. And, you know, what I've, what I've learned from our friends and colleagues the last few weeks is that, you know, the market is alive and well. You have New York and L.A., you have Seattle. And, you know, these are areas that are more impacted by the virus than others. Mm -hmm. So there's probably a higher degree of uncertainty. Uh, L.A., you know, you just started to be able to show houses again in the last couple of weeks. In New York, yes, we're essential, but we can't actually meet with people to show apartments or houses for that matter. Some are showing, some aren't. We have to be very careful about how we do it, take the necessary precautions. But, you know, you really need to be communicating with people and you need to be saying the right things. And those things are the facts. It's not about what right. I heard. And, you know, just this morning, I saw a headline posted by a friend of mine on Facebook that said that Cuomo extended the stay-at-home order in New York until June, June 15th. And then somebody else said in the comments, no, it's June 6th. And the truth is that no one really knows because the messaging from the governor has been a little uncertain. And, you know, what I see the governor saying is that there are areas that are opening and that, you know, they're, they're needing to meet certain thresholds, which is smart. But at the end of the day, we're going to have to reopen. We're going to have to reopen as a state. We're going to have to reopen as a city. And we're going to have to get back to normal, but we're going to have to take necessary precautions. And it's you know, going to be one step at a time. You know, in your neighborhood, if it, whether it's open or not, buyers and sellers are they're they're plotting right now. They're looking online. They're figuring things out. There's business to do. You might, there might be a lot of preparation business that you might do throughout the year. You're doing it all. You're like front loading that all, so you've got all this and and happening. But everything's happening. It's just happening in a different order. So. I think right now I'm as busy as ever doing things. Now, what I'm doing now might be something that I used to do the whole year. And now I'm just doing, I, so I'm, is, uh, as Tom says, loading the cannon, cannon. People are out there looking, figuring out what their next step is. So business is alive right now. And there's one thing else. I remember I said this to myself and I, it really resonated. My personal performance and attitude is more powerful and equally as devastating as any pandemic. <laughs> I mean, I don't think that that is an excuse what's happening for your business. I know that I've done really good in really bad markets. And I know I've done really bad in really good markets. And I know that I can make or break my business and what I'm personally doing and what's going in between my ears and the actions I'm taking have a far bigger impact than what's happening out there, like this pandemic that's occurring. You know, it's interesting that you say that because what you're describing is a lot of like my experience. I do better in uncertain markets 
and I don't do as well in more robust markets. And that's, you know, it's simply because of mindset, right? You're, you know, you feel like you're being left behind a little bit, or, you know, you're taking advantage of opportunities in, in times of uncertainty. And so, you know, really, we really need to focus on our mindset and we really need to focus on our client's mindset. Because if we're working with people who are fearful, well, they're less likely to transact. But if we're working with people who actually need to do something, those are people who we want to be around and are going to have a better mindset. And, you know, we're just agents. We're involved in this, like stockbrokers. We're involved in sales, whether prices go up or down. Our, personally, that doesn't impact what we do. And even if the market shrinks, and, you know, the difference between the best market and the worst market in history, it's not like zero and seven million. I think the most sales ever in the U.S. has been like seven million sales. The lowest has been three and a half. It's a 50% difference. Right now, we're at about five and a half just because there's not enough inventory. So even if the market shifts and we went down to four, that's still a lot of sales. And the other thing that happens if we went down in sales, um, half the real estate agents leave. The opportunity for us to make money really doesn't change in the marketplace. Uh, you just have to be, I mean, in harder markets, you have to be better. Um in better markets, there's a lot of sales, but ever, there's a lot of people scrambling for them. You just have to be scrappier. Yeah. And, and so what you're describing essentially is market share. There are opportunities to claim and lose market share depending on market conditions. Obviously, more people are attracted to real estate as a career in a stronger market, and people are more likely to go back to their desk jobs when things become a little bit more challenging as far as the broader environment is concerned. Yeah. So any agent out there, and I think probably mostly agents are listening to us, None of us, including myself, have any excuses ever unless real estate brokers become obsolete, at the, which is not the case and it just never has been. Um, our opportunities, regardless of what's happening in the world around us, are consistent. You just have to have the sensory acuity to make some adjustments and keep your head on straight and not listen to the bullshit. And, you know, it's really important to be good. Today, that is the one thing that is changing rapidly, and it has been. If you're not good at this, if you're not do your homework, if you're not schooled, you're not really taking this shit seriously and providing real value, you're, 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 you're going to be getting, uh, you're not going to succeed. But so you yeah. really do have to be good. I mean, guys like Josh and I we work our butt off and we're like, we're very successful and we're sitting there in conferences 10, 12 days a year. We're doing stuff like this. Um that's what it's all about. Really, actually, you know, we have a craft that's very skilled. It doesn't require college, but requires a lot of skills. And that is important. And those skills are always changing. We are right now doing something right now that didn't exist a couple of years ago. Yeah, no, that's, that's very true. There are a lot of innovations that are coming out of this. But, you know, at the end of the day, what's most important is that, you know, you and I, we have PhDs and master's degree from the University of Life. And so we actually have real world experience dealing with people, putting transactions together, picking up on these, as we discussed earlier, these tells both for buyers and sellers. You feel people that are into it. You feel people that are pulling away. But at the end of the day, what's, what's most important is that we continue to work together collaboratively and we have respect for one another. So Gary, one thing that I'd like to leave our audience with today yeah. is, is you also saw, sold the Chartwell estate. So I that did. eclipsed the Playboy Mansion by 50%. You sold yeah. the Playboy Mansion and the Hefner estate for $100 million. 
Chartwell went on to uh, sell for $150 million. Reported. Now, say again? Reportedly. Reportedly. Yeah. I'm sure there, you know, there were things behind the scenes, but the recorded number, $150 million. Now, you didn't do that alone. You no. worked collaboratively and mm -hmm. you worked with other people. So mm -hmm. you had an open mindset to how you were going to accomplish it as a team. Can you walk us through how that came to be? Um, you know, it's interesting how those work. But I, yeah, I, there was a, a number of really good agents on um, Chartwell. And the, the Playboy Mansion, I, there was also good agents. That one, I kind of single-handedly took the reins on and getting it sold. But we did have other good agents on it. The Chartwell Mansion, um, yeah, I, mean, I was really good at some of the marketing, really good at some of the contracts, um, but there were other people involved and uh, for sure, I mean, um, that really did some critical things on that. Um, but yeah, I've, I collaborate a lot on sales. There's no question about it. Um, and because I, people probably come to you as a luxury expert, so they say, hey, Gary did these deals, let's ask him for his opinion. And then you would probably have an accretive value to the overall process between, you know, gaining credibility with the prospective seller, your views on marketing, pricing, strategy. So you're really adding a lot of value to these situations and you're coming in as a team player. So, you know, what, what was that like? Um, it was, it, I, I didn't really think much of it. I mean, there's some people on there that just trump me in terms of the deals they've done. And, um, that probably, so it just, it, you know, it, it kind of worked out. We all did our thing and it was fine. I, so I don't know what to say in the chart. Well, I don't know what to say about that. I don't know if it was something, it was just, it was just interesting. I don't know what to really say about the collaborative effort of that sale other than it you know certainly was and it was a big job and you know we was a lot to do there and yeah. really can't, can't get yeah, into I, can, I can I, I can imagine you know recently we saw a couple of big deals actually fall through because uh, buyers took advantage of their opportunity to, to get out due to the uh, uncertainty of the pandemic I know uh, you know Jeff Bezos backed out of uh, one or two large deals in Los mm -hmm. Angeles, and he's going on to be uh, you know not only the one of the wealthiest people in the world, but I saw an article yesterday that said that uh, Bezos was said to be the first trillionaire in uh, world in the world's history. Uh, do you think that Bezos comes back to the LA market? Well, he's got quite a few things here. Yeah, he's he's all he's all in. He's, he didn't leave the LA. He paid one sixty five for a house. So that was one deal he concluded. That doesn't us. So I would say he's a little involved. Yeah. Yeah. But, well, I'd say 165 million dollars is a pretty significant footprint. Yeah, he he, he beat our record. Yeah, so no doubt. By 15. No, doubt. no, he, no. Yeah, I don't think he didn't buy because of the money. Who knows why he yeah. he backed out of that one. Yeah. So Gary, I know that you you shared that you wanted to be a comedian. Uh, you had a you know this this desire to be a writer. Um, what do you do in your spare time? Do you have any hidden talents that maybe not everybody knows about? Are you uh, flying planes, racing cars, sailing boats, chasing women? Um, no, I'm I'm really good at certain things. Cooking, I like to burn shit. I'm really good. <laughs> at, I'm very good at I'm, I'm very good at cooking. Um, I like to do yoga. I like to. I live at the beach. Yoga, stand up paddleboarding, riding my bike. Those are the things I like the most. Uh, I do a lot of speaking and 
for me, it's just a delivery system to do shtick. Uh, so I really like speaking and I, I do like, uh, you know, doing videos and I, I like, uh, making people laugh. Pro this whole real estate thing is just really just a front for being a smart ass. <laughs> it's a side gig. So with that, Gary Gold from uh, Hilton and Highland and Beverly Hills, uh, the uh, world's best smart ass. Thank you so much for joining us today, Gary. Take care.